You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 27 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Wednesday, the 2nd of March, 2016. My name is Harry Knight and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everyone. And Asha King. Hello, podcasters. We are back a little bit earlier than normal. We're all going off on a little holiday next week. And Ooh. so we thought with the way that events are coming and going within the surf world, we thought we'd put an episode out a little earlier rather than waiting and putting an episode out a little later. So I hope that you can cope with two episodes from us in such a short space of time. We've been doing a lot of pod crafting recently. We've that been is. crafting. Our pods are well crafted. They're, well, I hope they're well crafted. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's not our call to make. So it's actually, it's only been a week since we recorded the last episode, but have, have you guys managed to get up to much? I am really excited about next week. Uh, I'm going on the first non-surfing vacation I've been on in a really, really long time. I'm uh, going snowboarding in Aspen. Wow, big yeah, time. Trading in a little of uh, the salt water for some frozen fresh water. What are you doing up there? Yeah, a couple of my friends from college, uh, when I moved to Costa Rica, they went the other route and moved to the mountains and going to visit them. Very cool. Yeah. If anybody, cool. uh, if anybody has any recommendations on things to do in the Aspen area, please, uh, please let me know. Yeah. And you're you're going skiing as well, Ray. I'm going skiing for my my first time skiing. Because you're a snowboarder normally. Been snowboarding once, so I'm not for four days. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not oh, sure. Snowboarder. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to call myself a snowboarder. So is this your this is your second time to the mountains? Yeah. I went I went skiing once when I was 11 for a few days. Okay. And I just remember it not being that hard. So, I'm so fine. you pretty much got it now. <laughs> no, I went. I went snowboarding about four years ago again, just for like a few days, and then uh, yeah, my girlfriend and I. Uh, she she grew up skiing in the French Alps, so she's really good. So we're going to go along, and I'm going to be sort of snow plowing along behind her with pillows duct taped to my bum. Smooth. Yeah. Smooth. Come on, <laughs> To be honest with you, I've been trying to get all my work done and ready for being away next week, and I'm so tired. Yeah. I, like, I could barely, my head is like, you know when your head's like flopping forwards? I had a couple of days this week when I'm working at the computer. Oh. And, you, and I, saw, I saw on Amazon that you could buy this thing, which is kind of like a massive pillow that you put over your head that's got a little breathing hole for your your nose and mouth and that you can put your hands in yeah so you can just lie forward and sleep at your desk i just think that looks amazing (laughs) surely surely given that your desk is within 20 feet of your bed is it not easier to get up and take a little nap? Take a little nap. <laughs> yeah, probably. But just, you, could, you could wear the head pillow hat around all day. I think that would just look great. Okay, rolling on to the news then. The big story for this episode is obviously the Eddie I Cow, which took place as I was editing the uh, last episode of the podcast. Do you guys tune in and watch? Oh my goodness. Yeah, every bit that I could, I was watching. Glued to my computer. But Maureen came over while I was watching it. And, I, and she was like, oh, what are you doing? And I was like, I, I think I'm watching the best surf contest I've ever seen. Yeah. And she <laughs> was like, amazing. no, seriously. I was like, yeah, I, th- I really think it is. Especially the, all the round one heats. It got a little slow. Well, I said a little slow. I mean, it was incredible all the way through. You know, usually with big wave contests, you have these incredibly long, painful lulls where you forget actually what you're watching. Yeah. And that didn't really happen. There was a couple of gaps towards the end of the day, but on the whole, it was incredible. Yeah, it was really fast paced. Yeah, it, well, I mean, there, there were waves being ridden because they give them an hour-long heat on the assumption that an hour will probably give everybody a chance to try and catch something. But mm-hmm. actually, there was a wave being ridden 
Like every couple of minutes. It, well, it felt, certainly felt like every couple of minutes, didn't it? It, it was the, the, very, very good. There were so many waves ridden that they sometimes didn't have time to get to the replays before another ride was on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they, they were doing an interview with, I think there was one where they were just interviewing Mark Healy and just in the corner on the bottom left-hand side of the screen, there's like John John and someone else dropping yeah. into like 40, 50 foot face waves. And, that, and that's not, they're not even like cutting to it straight away because it's like, yeah, that's still happening. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then in between the waves, you had those wash through sets. I mean, did you guys see that one set that all the Caught water all patrol the jet skis. had to turn around and book it towards the beach? Yeah. It's incredible. I don't know if they even... I mean, this is a big call, and I, I really don't know I, I, whether they would have run the eddy with those closeout sets going like, you know, t 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, I don't know. I think they might have just looked at it and thought, yeah, actually, that, that's kind of too big for the bay. There's closeout sets coming. Yeah. I want to say that they have done that in the past. I want to say that a couple of years ago, there was a, the, the one day when it got big in the whole of the, the waiting period for the eddy, they said it's too big. Yeah. The, the bay's closing out. We're not going to run. We'll hopefully there'll be another another day. What impressed me by far most of the whole day is you got maxing Waimea Bay, closeout sets every 30 minutes or so, and 66-year-old Clyde Aikau is, is surfing these massive waves with dudes a third of his age. Yeah, I, and going for it, like yeah. chucking himself over the yeah, ledge on a paddleboard. Yeah, that first heat was incredible, and he was, he was the only competitor riding a single fin. Yeah, he was riding the most classic-looking, just like blue-green single fin. It was amazing. Oh, no, he, he, yeah, I mean that was amazing. I actually, I sent, uh, <laughs> I sent my mum a clip of him. You know, like my mum likes to sit down and watch <laughs> surf contests now and again, and uh, yeah, I sent her a clip of uh, of Clyde Icaud. It was so inspiring. I mean, yeah. just amazing. I think that as you get older, there are some things in surfing that you're just not going to be able to do. And yes, I know there are exceptions like the Kelly Slaters of this world who are doing airs in their mid forties, but you know, for, for the vast majority of us, that just isn't the case. Mm. Riding bigger waves and riding barreling waves is something you can, I think still keep getting better and better at. And I don't mean that you have to go out and get barrel at Chopu or pipeline or ride Waimea, but just as, uh, what, whatever for us means big waves and maybe yeah. that for you listener is you know head high waves or maybe it's triple overhead but keeping to push things size wise as you get older is something that's very very doable into your 60s i think yeah mm -hmm. it is interesting the, the, the so john john florence won the event stellar performance he, he looked as casual dropping in to 50 foot faces at wyomere as he did dropping into yeah. small beach breaks on the world tour it was it was very very casual performance but the rest of the guys that are making up the top the top bit we got ross clark jones we got shane dorian we got kelly slater it's all guys in their 40s mm -hmm. i'd love to have seen, ross clark jones was actually in the lead there for a while I would oh until really until the last couple of minutes yeah i mean i love that john john won i'm a big john john fan but it, that would have been cool yeah. What what every heat that came up was just like an A list of surf celebrities from the last thirty years. Yeah, I mean, mix it, of ages. It, it, some of those heats looked like fantasy surfer super heats. You yeah. Know, if you were just sitting around with a, a, a having a beer, kind of saying, "Or oh, who would you love to see surfing against each other?" Anything from the eighties, nineties, noughties, or this decade. It was yeah. it was almost like that. It was just too good to be true. It was such a treat. Yeah. yeah. What what was your favorite moment? Favorite wave? Favorite wipeout? Ooh, it's a tough one for favorite wave, but I really liked that 
closeout set that Mason Ho took off. Oh, that's what I was going to say. It was amazing. It looked almost identical to that iconic wave of Brock Littles during uh, one of the Eddie Icows of yesteryear, that one where he just packs that huge closeout from the middle of the bay. And I mean, it looks almost identical. Even to the way he fell off was almost the exact same. Yeah, he kind of, he like hit, there was a ridge coming up the wave that just like hit his board sideways on. Mm -hmm. And if you watch it in slow-mo, the front third of the front of his the front side of his board just goes goes completely under the water I re- i'm not sure that i'm not sure that was makeable i just don't know how he could have negotiated it he would have had to anticipate that big ridge and somehow get his weight back or maybe turn yeah. into it a bit i i just think that it was so cool that he paddled into yeah. it, it we'll, we'll stick it in the show notes but yeah Grand- slater's barrel slater's was barrel was, that was amazing incredible as well. you could kind of tell that slater was hunting down a barrel the whole event he was riding a shorter board in the second heat i think he was riding an eight eight or something something in the eight foot range and sitting way inside and looking for those kind of ledgy ones i think that john john and slater were riding boards in the eight something range yeah. and everyone mm-hmm. else was in the sort of nine six to ten something kind of range mm-hmm. yeah i tell you what else you know we were talking about john john and, and how his style it looks so good i mean you don't often think about style when it comes to big wave riding no you tend not. to think about how big and and crazy the wave is and just where the surfer is on the wave yeah and i guess part of that is usually because the footage that we see the surfer is so small that you tend not to notice those little mm-hmm. like hand placements knee placements that that kind of are the signatures of someone's style but then, like you say, watching John John surfing out there, he looked so relaxed. And I wonder, I mean, he comes across as a very relaxed kind of guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I remember reading an interview with Joel Parkinson, another surfer who always sort of looks very relaxed and casual when he's surfing. And the interviewer said to him, you always look so relaxed. And, and, and Joel Parkinson was like, I don't feel relaxed, especially in heats. I'm like, my, yeah. inside my head, yeah. I'm going crazy. I, I don't know why my body looks as if I'm so relaxed. I'm not. And it just reminded me of John John. And I'm thinking, you know, I won, obviously John John it, it pushes it as hard as anyone on a surfboard in pretty much any size waves. Mm-hmm. And he looks so casual and relaxed. And I wonder whether he really is in his head. He's just, you know the engine is just ticking over at a very casual speed how it looks yeah. or if it's just an artifact of the way he happens to have trained his body to to be I, yeah to the way he holds himself i would argue the latter i don't think Probably. anyone's really comfortable in why man that size you wouldn't think so would you no no still on the subject of big waves the big wave world tour finished its holding period on the 28th of february and greg long was crowned the champion of the big wave world tour Uh, However, of the seven events that they were going to run, only three actually ended up running. So we had the Quicksilver Ceremonial at uh, Punta de Lobos in Chile. We had the Todos Santos event in Mexico and we had the Piahi Challenge in Hawaii. Uh, So there was a whole load of events that didn't end up running. And Greg Long didn't actually win any of the events but he and didn't surf in the third event, but he, he got two strong finishes in the other two events, which put him at the top of the leaderboard. Big Wave World Tour is a bit of a funny one, huh? Because of those three events they did run, yeah. uh, two of them were very forgettable. I mean, I could barely remember what the third one was because the Chile event didn't even have a webcast. The Toto Santos event was pretty unimpressive. Wasn't I mean, it was in big surf, but nothing crazy. Mm-hmm. And then you had just the adrenaline day of the Piahi Challenge, so... Well, the Piahi Challenge definitely was a, a saviour, wasn't it? I mean, that really did make all the difference. In t- I mean, if, if that event hadn't run, I mean, it could have been a very forgettable season. Mm-hmm. And when you look forward going with the Tour, I mean, this was an El Nino winner. This was about as good as it's going to get for big wave surfing yeah. uh, for, you know, the foreseeable future. How are they going to follow that up? What are they going to do next year when there's 
maybe dramatically less well in the water? Well, we are uh, traditionally what does tend to happen after a big El Nino, and I believe that the forecast is suggesting this will happen, is that we roll into a La Nina uh, through the summer and into next winter, which does generally bring in much, much smaller swell coming out of the north. So, yeah, interesting to see. Given how epic the eddy was, that does seem like quite a cool format, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, in, not just in terms of the, the scoring, which I do think was really interesting, uh, yeah. and maybe we should talk about that a little bit, but the the idea of saying, okay, look, here's a, a specific surf location that's a big wave spot. We only run if it gets to this certain size and for long enough, and we have this two or three month waiting period. And then there's not that many big wave spots in the world. And you, you could have a, you know, a Wyomere Bay event, you know, we have a Mavericks event, a Jaws event, and then we don't try and tally them all up because often they're not going to run through the, through the year, but mm-hmm. instead there are just these individual prestigious events where, you know, as, as a big wave surfer, you can hold your head up high having won the Jaws event or the Mavericks event or the Wyomere event. Yeah, yeah. It, it's certainly an interesting thought, but what, rather than having them tied together into a tour. Yeah, just each one is a standalone event. Prestigious event. Yeah, just yeah, in its own right. But then by that taking, would perhaps some of those events that exist right now, you know, you've got Nescot Reef in Oregon, the Punta de Lobos one, you know, may, might they just fade into obscurity? I mean, I think they're pretty much already on track to fade into obscurity. I mean, the prize money that you get for placing in a middle-of-the-road Big Wave World Tour event is barely enough to cover the cost of getting there. So you have all these big wave guys that, I mean, the only way they're going to make a viable career is with endorsements. And that's that's pretty tough in that market. Yeah, that's true. So I don't know if you guys saw this article uh, that Beach Grit ran showing how much prize money the guys who finished, you know, top of the big wave world tour actually made. So Greg Long made $18,000. Yeah. So big wave surfing, arguably the most challenging physical sport that there is mm-hmm. and he's the world champion at it you know admittedly he only did two events but you know eighteen thousand dollars mccord rotham made fifteen thousand billy kemper twenty five thousand nick lamb seven thousand dollars i mean that isn't going to cover no airfare and well, yeah. getting to these events especially when you remember that they're, they're given 48 hours notice to get from wherever they are to you know some of them okay maui's maybe not quite so difficult assuming you're in America, but some of the guys would have been flying in from Europe, from Australia. That's not going to be so easy. I think probably the, the real winner of the World Tour has got to be Billy Kemper because he got $25,000 for winning at Piahi and was able to just drive there from his house. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> a pretty good deal. <laughs> Moving on, the World Tour is starting next week and we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail in a second. But over the course of the last week, two weeks, there has been quite a list of athletes pulling out oh man the injury um, list is becoming huge I know, so, just just after we recorded the last show i was thinking that was a, that was a good episode i was pretty stoked with that one good bit of banter and the interview that we had with david davis was really good and then about 12 hours after the show went up there was the eddie and mick fanning announced that he was gonna uh, yes and, and i was like wow the show is out of date already, already. Even gone up. out of date before <laughs> harry's even finished editing it so yeah the, the the first thing that happened was mick fanning announced so he's still going to surf at the first event at snapper which is home event but he has said that he won't be surfing the whole year uh, so I'm not quite sure how that's going to work and how many events he's sur- going to surf. Kelly's made that call on a couple of occasions and 
ended up winning the world tour so i'm going to take it with a pinch of salt until he genuinely does pull out but owen wright and b derbage both are still injured after some fairly horrific wipeouts on the north shore of hawaii i mean owen wright is such a, a sad story i mean he was pretty much the standout of pipe in the early season and then he got knocked out on a duck dive i mean just total freak accident and it's just such a bummer that happened to a guy who charges so hard and is like is an inspiration for a lot of kids growing up to push themselves in bigger waves and then yeah his injury doesn't seem good so yeah for those of you guys that don't know owen wright suffered a fairly bad head injury earlier in the season he is still suffering some neurological damage he was suffering amnesia a few weeks ago and having coordination issues the medical team do seem to be hopeful that it will pass but it is going to take time uh, and so he's withdrawn i think from the whole first half of the season hasn't he which allows adam melling back on the tour he's the first replacement surfer and then Bede Derbidge Bede again was injured in Hawaii uh, he fell landed on his hip uh, on the reef and shattered his pelvis can't so be he, a comfortable injury and no I think that's going to be a pretty painful one so he's going to be out for a little while however he is joining the WSL commentary team for the snapper event well, I mean, it'd be really interested to see how well he does at that because he's always very kind of like monotone, understated, softly spoken. I mean, like he comes yeah. across as a real gentleman and a very likable guy, but I, I can't see him dynamically holding the interest of the listener in the commentary booth for a long period of time. Yeah, it'll be interesting to have him on. Really interesting thing there is that the second replacement is Stu Kennedy. Love it. Who That is an exciting addition to the tour. Uh, has a freshly shaped batch of Tomos. Oh, you think he's... That's interesting. I was just formulating in my head when I was out surfing my Evo this morning about how, while I think it's a really, really fun board for 99% of surfers, I don't think it's optimized for the really high-performance maneuvers of the world tour so i don't think it would much as i love it i don't think it'll ever be a world tour board but maybe i'm wrong well it'll be interesting to see because theoretically kelly slater and Stu kennedy will both be riding tomo surfboards so it'll be interesting to see what designs they do ride the final injury that we have is lakey peterson who broke her leg prepping for snapper surfing rincon and the right hand point breaks around ventura hit a bit of backwash and snapped her ankle pretty badly so ha she is also out have you seen the video of the wipeout no i haven't oh it looks painful yeah, yeah, it's just this kind of soft left, and she's just doing a, a little finishing reentry on. I mean, what is it like a chest high wave? Mm -hmm. And the backwash hits her at that really like the the time when you're coming off the lip, not really stable, and it, it just the worst time ever hits her, and you can just see some everything crunch. So with the 2016 World Championship Tour season just about to kick off in Australia later this month. What I wanted to do this episode was do a hopefully quite quick breakdown of how the championship tour works, how the judging works, the scoring works, things like that, so that you guys can get you know as fired up and excited about the, uh, about the new season as we all are. But when I was doing my research, I found there were a few little things that I just had some questions about. So I reached out to the WSL to try and get some answers. Very quickly, I got through to Dave Proden, who is the vice president in charge of communications and him and myself had a, a good back and forth over email and managed to answer most of my questions, which was fantastic. But very kindly, he also offered to come on the show and answer some of our questions on air. So, 
given the time constraints of the podcast, we don't quite have time to do both my little breakdown and chat to Dave. So we're going to chat to uh, Dave this week and hopefully in the next episode we'll go into a little bit more detail about how the world tour works. Uh, In the meantime, if there's anything that comes up in our interview with Dave, I will put links in the show notes that will hopefully uh, bridge the gap between the two. But for now, uh, I'm very excited to say Dave Proden is on the line. Dave, can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's great to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on. Could you just explain, I guess, very quickly, what what is your job role as the vice president in charge of communications? Yeah, sure. It's it's an interesting job. It probably changes day to day. Uh, This is actually, I'm starting my 11th season with the sport. So there's been a lot of changes in recent years. Um, I guess communication, it probably sits at that interesting nexus between you know, fans and administrators, commissioners, athletes, media, and sponsors. And so, so what we try to do is make sure that all voices and stakeholders, you know, specifically the athletes and fans, are, are being considered when we're making decisions on how to improve the sport or how to portray the sport and deliver the product to the most people possible in the best manner possible. So it's a little bit of everything, um, but it's certainly interesting. Keeps me keeps me interested. So you, you sound like you're enjoying it. Is it fun? Ah, yeah, there's zero complaints. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate to have been able to travel to all the sort of dream spots that I always looked at as a kid and, and wondered if I'd ever get to go there. And, and now I get to go there and, and go there for work and go there to kind of celebrate something that I really believe in. I was very fortunate when I started. I started under the presidency of Wayne Rabbit Bartholomew, and I was really sort of eager when I started. And I was asking like a trillion questions every day, and 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 Bugs broke it down for me uh, real simply one day. And he said, uh, he said, look, what we do here is we just take the best surfers we can find and put them in the best waves we can find, and that's a formula to see some really cool shit. And he goes, it doesn't need to be any more complex than that. And and you know, for me. I've been an acolyte of bugs since since well before I worked here, but that that to me has always sort of been my north star. And so, for any of our listeners who don't know who Wayne Rabbit Bartholomew is or Bug, just watch the movie Busting Down the Door, and that'll really tell you about what an epic figure Dave came up under. Yeah, you mentioned before before we started talking about how you and I were actually chatting with some of the guys from Facebook years and years ago when we were trying to figure out this whole new social media thing, and it sort of occurred to me that actually you're kind of uniquely placed in the world in as far as surfing just by necessity was one of the early embraces of webcasts because precisely because you didn't know when things were going to run so you know you couldn't put it on tv and then it's also such a a sport that lends itself to aesthetics to photography much more than most other sports so you've kind of almost inadvertently been put right at the pinnacle of where sort of sports communication is actually happening through social media and you probably didn't anticipate that when you first came into it i guess it's certainly not, but I think you touched on some really interesting points. In the sort of 70s and 80s in, in professional surfing's infancy, the goal was to put as many events on tour as possible. And the marketing model at the time was often placing these events in high population areas to kind of get butts on the sand, as they say. Yeah. Um, what would happen then, though, is that sort of high population areas, you're often compromising wave quality. So the events would be held in uh, sort of mediocre conditions at best. So we had a lot of events, but sort of low quality events. And in the 90s, you know, Bugs was actually the architect of the quote unquote dream tour, which he I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in these board meetings when he convinced the then sort of CEOs of the surf industry that, you know, instead of going to these highly populated areas where you're going to allow people on the sand, we're going to go to remote locations in the middle of the jungle, the middle of Africa, where 
the waves are amazing, but no one's going to see them. So out of necessity, the sport really started out at the vanguard of sort of media delivery and creating these webcasts. You know, a men's event has a two-week window. The competition runs about four days. There was no way we could go to a Fox or an ESPN or an ABC and have them block out two weeks of programming for sort of an uncertain four days of action. So the webcast developed, as you said, out of necessity to kind of deliver those fans. And I think it actually developed a fan base that it's really at the at the forefront of sort of early adopters and technology. And when social media kind of came of age over the last five to 10 years, it's benefited the sport tremendously because we still have a very uncertain schedule as to when we're on and being able to connect with our fans one-on-one and alert them as to when we're on, um, it's hugely beneficial to our sport. So we've transitioned now from the ASP to the WSL and that was a pretty big change, but where do you see it going from here so within the structure of the webcast where do you see it going or season wise where do you see the structure going in the years coming forward there have been a significant amount of changes since the acquisition in late 2012 and really you know it pleases me to say that in all the board meetings and all the ownership meetings they believe in that same north star that i've always believed in and that is that our product is world's best surfers world's best waves now that we have converged all the previously disparate mechanisms of the sport from the webcast to marketing to sponsorship to athlete servicing. They all sit under the now WSL umbrella and and we're able to control a lot more in terms of where we go and when we go there. And, And fortunately, the data that we've received over the last two years in monitoring audience sort of trends and movements is they tune in when the waves are at their peak. So Tahiti and Pipeline and Fiji and J-Bay, we're seeing huge spikes when the waves are great. So that's reassuring to me, not only as an employee, but as a fan, that the direction of the sport is always going to be committed to the best surfers we can get in the best waves we can get. Um, as far as enhancements in the season, I mean, there's certainly other venues that we'd consider as sort of world-class waves. And then those are tabled by the surfers themselves and and go through the commissioner's office. We're very fortunate to have Kieran Perot as our commissioner. He's a former pipe master, former longtime competitor. On his team is Renato Hickel, who manages the men's tour. Uh, Jesse Miley Dyer, who's a former women's world champion and longtime competitor. She runs the women's tour. And Peter Mel runs the big wave tour, as well as Travis Logie, who's now in charge of the, uh, the QS and the juniors. So they're true core surfers with like quality at, at, in mind and uh, all decisions technical or otherwise about where we go and why we go, how many people are on tour, what the judging is are all made through the surfers themselves. So, yeah. So uh, you said just then, you know, now that you've got everything pulled in under the one banner, you've got the, the WSL is now a very cohesive unit and you're getting good data back from, from every aspect of that. And you're seeing big peaks in viewership for the good waves when they're best is it a discussion that's happening to maybe restructure the tour a little bit maybe change it a little bit i've seen various things where people are saying you know reduce the number of competitors to increase the amount the the amount of waiting time reduce the number of events maybe close up the season a little bit run the qs and the ct non-overlapping i've seen lots of ideas about changing the tour and it, it sounds like the data you're getting might support that Yeah, I mean, I think the nice thing about, as you said, having everything under one shop is that we can kind of have those discussions outside the theoretical realm now. We could actually do it if we we wanted. I mean, our team, which consists of a few folks from pre-acquisition and a lot of folks from outside the industry, 
you know, they really put everything on the board as, as a possibility. But again, that North Star is still, let's get the best surfers and the best waves. And, you know, at the moment, I think that the commissioner's office is very happy with the 36-man CT format and the 18-woman format. I think the idea there is that they're not missing out on any world-class surfing that's happening outside those 36 or 18. And they also don't have anyone in those groups that are maybe sort of lowering the level of that elite level of surfing. So that's their goal in terms of determining how many surfers are on tours, ensuring that the world's best surfing is happening in those events. But yeah, I mean, everything really is on the table. At the end of the day, you know, we're challenged, but also very fortunate to have the most dynamic field of play in all of sports in the ocean. I think that unpredictability is a huge asset, you know, for us, you know, Tahiti and Fiji and, and the Gold Coast and, you know, Rio and Trestles in France, like those are all venues that are incredibly important to determining the world's best surfer and the world's best comprehensive surfer. Uh, we wouldn't ever support having a tour of, you know, 10 Tahitis. We don't think that's that's the best kind of platform to determine who the world's best surfer is. So for us, it's about variety of, of world-class waves on tour. As a, uh, as a fan, it's, it's been really enjoyable watching the webcasts evolve over the last few seasons. And um, one thing that I really like is seeing the WSL experiment with different commentators and different ideas and getting it a bit wrong sometimes and getting it right more often than not. And, it, you know, I, I guess I would say as a fan, like, please keep experimenting because it's, it's cool to watch. And uh, our, our mutual friend that we mentioned before from Facebook, I remember I was up at the offices there and they have written in big letters on, on the wall, make mistakes, make them big and make them quickly. I quite like that approach to it. So uh, I really hope you guys keep playing with the format and experimenting and not being afraid to. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of times about how it's under this new banner. And, and I've, I don't know much about it, but I believe it's a couple from Florida who have essentially bought up the whole thing, which kind of makes them, I guess, pretty much the most important people in surfing. But I personally don't know very much about them. And I think a lot of people a lot of people don't. Could you could you tell us a little bit about them? And yeah, sure. Um, you know, Dirk and Natasha Ziff are part of sort of we're part of the acquisition group that involved a number of people, and they're participatory board members. I mean, we're really fortunate that they have very very uh, extensive knowledge in a number of sort of departments and industries, from entertainment to commerce to uh, athlete management. So you know, they're not just sort of owners, but they're very participatory board members and really, really care about this sport. You know, they're surfers themselves. Uh, again, they're not the only owners and they're not the only sort of board members, but, you know, they've been tremendously supportive in the last few years in terms of delivering, you know, everything the sport needs. I mean, there was a huge initiative to support women surfing early on and, and they were instrumental in bringing the girls to back to Fiji in bringing them to Trestles for the first time and shifting their European event from Buritz in the summer to Hasegore in the fall and for returning them to Maui. So I think in addition to that, they've also supported the men's events as well and really just guided us across every every aspect of the sport from media delivery to broadcast to athlete management. It's been really, really wonderful working with people of that caliber and the people in and around their sort of ecosystem. Oh, very cool. One of the things I always kind of struggle with when I, if there's an event that's outside of my time zone or it's it's a little hard for me to watch, when I come in, I kind of have the choice between the very brief highlight clips, which is music and no story, or watching the whole heat in real time. In terms of broadcasting out to, to the wider world, you guys have teamed up with a couple of TV channels, a couple of cable channels around and present uh, like a highlights package a couple of weeks after the close of each event. 
do you think it's something that you might move towards as a, a, a highlights package for the internet viewer that manages to retain the storytelling but without having to watch six hours of competition see this is the part of the interview where, where we all start jumping in with our five cents worth of ideas <laughs> it's going to be a long interview don't worry the, um, yeah no I, I think those are both good points I think again it, it, the new organization is incredibly data driven so the products that you see on the website are, are being informed by audience data there is a sort of a contingent of fans that they might not be in the correct time zone to watch it live, but they want to tune in and watch it and still be surprised. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that's becoming more and more challenging in the information age where you wake up and the first thing you do is check your Instagram and you can probably infer who did well and who didn't from Instagram or the results are being texted to you. So I think that sort of delayed viewing experience has become more and more challenging to kind of have in future. But again, if, if the audience is there for it, I think the WSL will continue to deliver it. It's an interesting note you bring up about having sort of the highlight packaged from the day is sort of almost in a longer form than it currently is for fans. And that's certainly something that could be discussed. I haven't really heard it discussed too much around the office yet. But yeah, I mean, in future, certainly some of those cut down shows that are then delivered to broadcast could be an option online. I think the challenge with that, though, is that the turnaround on those becomes a little longer than the day because there's significant post-production work that goes into those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So something that we've talked about on the show quite often, and, and since I've got you here, I feel like I, it, it would be remiss not to bring it up. So quite often I'm working and I come in and I, I, I then want to kind of watch the webcast live, but I'm just, you know, two or three hours behind the live action. And I, and I shut off my phone, go put it in airplane mode so that I'm not accidentally going to see anything about results. And what I really want is just a big window up on the on the WSL homepage covering up all of the information about who's won that just says like click here to watch the webcast from the beginning without finding out who won you know what I mean or you know you can just get rid of that square and go on with the rest of the website so I, I guess this is a, this is a plea from all of the people that <laughs> please <laughs> this is a plea from all of the people that are stuck at desks during the webcast but want to want to be able to do that. that it's a plea from the diligent workforce out there I think most of our audience is willing to watch while they're at work or at school anyway so oh, it's good feedback I think for sure we're gonna I'll, I'm happy to take that to everyone and see what they say <laughs> um, there were a couple of things with the bullet points of the judging criteria we were talking about how you know the, the emphasis can be moved around on those bullet points from one venue to another uh, at pipeline they might emphasize the commitment and degree of difficulty where at trestles you might be prioritized a little more the innovative and progressive maneuvers how does that work on a day-to-day -day basis when when you're down on the ground yeah i mean the, the judging criteria is 100 percent determined on the day and often it can evolve throughout the day by our head judge so effectively, as you described before, you know, the tour is designed with different kinds of waves in mind to determine the world's best comprehensive surfer across a variety of conditions. And we do our best to schedule the events in windows where those conditions are, are firing at sort of in classic conditions or at their best. But yeah, I mean, we could easily go to pipeline and have in the past when there are no barrels. It's just, you know, operating a little bit more like a beach break. You know, conversely, we can go to a beach break like France where, you know, it's, you know, 10 foot Le Gravier and, and, and very, very, you know, sort of a barrel centric, right? So, so the conditions are determined every morning and determined throughout the day and, and the judging can scale throughout the day. I, I think, you know, the, the WSL judges are probably some of the most unappreciated officials in all of sport. Um, and I'd say that 
surfing is arguably the most watched and certainly the most passionately watched, subjectively scored sport on the planet. So, you know, if you're looking at the last five years and you're looking at the kinds of surfing that was happening five years ago in the live arena versus the kind of surfing that happened last year in the live arena, the judges deserve a ton of credit for encouraging the world's best surfing happening now in the live arena, where in past years, maybe it happened when guys were filming for video parts or or photo shoots. I think the guys are really pushing the envelope now in the live arena, and that's because the judging criteria has evolved to reward high-risk surfing a little bit more than it did in the past. But yeah, to to answer your question, you know, conditions change on the day and, and different parts of the criteria are emphasized on the day. Moving forward, would there be a possibility to get the head judge, Richie Porta, a little more involved in the webcast? Glad you mentioned Pipe. For example, like last year, finals day, Gabriel Mendina threw that huge rotator air. Pipe is typically a a barrel-centric event, and I think the viewer might have not known that the criteria may have shifted. Is there a possibility to bring the head judge in and kind of explain to the viewer why that decision was made? Yeah, also, he's just a really interesting guy, too. I consider Richie Porta to be my hetero life mate because he and I have traveled on tour together <laughs> for a number of years and, and often stay together. And I agree I agree with you. I think uh, he's incredibly informative and interesting and, and very funny uh, when he's on the webcast. And the amount of, I suppose, egos that he deals with year in and year out and the way he's able to hand himself with class is, is impressive to me. And I don't want to. I don't want to pump him up too much because I got to go see him in a day or two. But the, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. And I think that in absence of Richie being able to really educate the fans as to what the judges are thinking, having a technical judge um, sort of on the commentary team or one of the commentators really embedded with the judging group and, and communicating with them day in and day out to provide that perspective is really important for the fans because I, I, do, I, do, I do agree with you. I think fans uh, in the web were very shocked that, Gabrielle receiving the score that he did for what he did. But on the beach, it was very apparent that the conditions had shifted significantly. And I think having a judge's perspective or an official's perspective on why he received the score that he did is important. Yeah. And the the criteria, those five bullet points are quite often brought up, you know, on the on the screen as this is the criteria that we use. And the, the one that's always confused me is the difference between the mixture of major maneuvers and the variety of maneuvers. Sure. Um, and I'd, I'd actually always been under the misapprehension that the mixture of major maneuvers is, you know, mixing airs, barrels, and turns. And you were telling me that actually that that's more, any maneuver could be considered a major maneuver. Uh, absolutely. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it is, the, the points of difference are a variety of maneuvers and then combination of major maneuvers. Yes. So the way that I like to think of it is, you can do a power turn or you can do sort of a, a stock standard turn. You can do a power air or you can do a sort of a stock standard air. So the power maneuvers are considered major maneuvers. So if you did two power turns in a row, that would be considered a combination of major maneuvers. You're doing you know, maneuvers at the highest possible level back to back to back to back in some cases. Variety of maneuvers um, could be major maneuvers. It could just be sort of stock standard maneuvers. But that is if you get a wave and... Perhaps it doesn't allow for major maneuvers. You don't have the speed to carry you, but you were doing a floater and then a cutback and then an air and then a snap. That would be a variety of maneuvers. They might not be major, but you're certainly incorporating a variety. Now, ideally, in those situations, a combination of different major maneuvers would probably score the most, right? Because you're doing a bunch of different maneuvers and you're doing them with as much speed and power as possible. Those two things seem to sort of call for the same the same thing to mix different maneuvers on the wave and the bigger the maneuver the bigger the score is going to be 
So if you were producing a mixture of maneuvers that were very, very good, you're going to be pushing it into the 8, 9, 10 range. If you did the same mixture of maneuvers, but they were lesser maneuvers, it's going to be pushed down into the 4 or 5 range. So are the two bullet points then maybe a little irrelevant and could it not be combined into one bullet point? And Dave, this is all coming from a place where, you know, we do surf coaching on a weekly basis. And one of the courses that we do is all about judging and understanding the criteria. So uh, we always end up getting asked all these types of questions. <laughs> so we're kind of passing the buck on to you a little bit. A hundred percent. And I, and then for all the viewers and listeners out there, don't, don't quote me too much because I don't want to speak too much for the judging fraternity. But I remember years ago, Kelly was recapping the first time he met Tom Kern and it was in France and Tom was Kelly's hero. And he said they went out and surfed this beach break and he was just, he was surfing awful. Like every maneuver he went up for, he fell and he was just embarrassed and he must have been in his teens or something. And he said, Tom was just ethereal, just surfing at, at full, full flight. And he said they got out and Kelly just felt awful. And he said he got out of the water and he said, Tom, you know, he's a pretty quiet guy doesn't say much kind of went up to him and they're they're talking and he goes you know he goes depending on the the curvature of the wave there's different ways you want to approach an off the lip and that was sort of tom's like indirect and very kind way of telling kelly that he was cooking it out there um, <laughs> and i think that that lends itself a lot to the judging criteria R richie and the judges are always fond of saying that you cannot do every maneuver in every section of the wave. do have to approach every section and, and surf it as strong as you can, especially at the elite level. But some sections lend themselves to air, some lend themselves to turns, some lend themselves to bottom turns or barrels. So yeah, I think if you were to prioritize how one would surf, major maneuvers, especially at the elite level, score best. But if you can only do two major maneuvers, or you can do six different maneuvers on the same wave, there's a lot of subjectivity there. And the judges sort of have to parse that what was better and what was better on the day. Is it these two major maneuvers on this wave or is it these six very different maneuvers on this wave that maybe were not executed with as much speed and power as possible? I think the trend we've seen, especially in recent years on the CT, has been gravitating towards the major maneuvers. Yeah. But there are QS events and there's different judges and different judging panels under the WSL umbrella that you know, sometimes award more maneuvers. I think when you're, especially when you're younger and, and the surfers kind of are a little bit small and haven't fully developed physically yet, you see, I guess, a greater weight on variety of maneuvers and getting a lot of maneuvers done on a wave. And as they get older and, and the points of difference become physicality, you know, you're seeing people being scored in the excellent range for a single maneuver. So the, so having those two bullet points allows the same criteria to be applied kind of across the board to all WSL events if it's a, a very low-ranked pro junior event all the way up to the finals at Pipeline. Absolutely. And I think if the conditions on the day aren't lending themselves to any power maneuvers or any major maneuvers, you could easily use the uh, variety of maneuvers as a point of difference to score well, right? No one, no one did a major turn today, but we did score high on people that incorporated variety, okay. right? While we're on the subject of judging, how does equipment factor into the judging criteria? You always hear surfers talk about boards that hide a liter or two of volume without looking like a round nose board to judges. Or you got guys like Stu Kennedy or Kelly Slater's new designs that are 
you know, pretty alternate looking to what's been the status quo for a couple of years. Yeah, look, there's, there's no way around it. It's a subjectively scored sport and aesthetics plays into it in significantly. I feel like it's a situation, a little bit of the tail wagging the dog in that you often see experimental equipment or I suppose non-traditional equipment applied in free surfs first, and then they sort of make their way into the elite level of competition. And I think that application in free surfs, whether people are seeing it through photos or videos or just sort of the uh, indirect endorsement of the world's best surfers, primes the sport to accept it better, right? I think uh, when when Mayhem delivered 5.5 five by 19 and a quarter of the video, there was a lot of blowback. But a few years later, Chris Ward made the finals at Snapper Rocks on his first event on a round nose fish. If you look back 15 years, everyone was on the glass slipper or sort of the Weber banana board. I mean, Dane Reynolds in, I think, 2008 brought in the dumpster diver. can't remember if it was before or after, but I remember he blew my mind in, I think it was 2010, round three, it, like two foot senos on an MTF altered. Everyone was out there struggling to do like one turn and you can find it. It's like a round two or round three heat against Roy Powers. Everyone all day was struggling to do like one or two turns on a wave. And he took this big fin, Merrick twin fin board out. And everyone was looking at him like, well, I guess he doesn't care because the conditions are awful. And he was doing full wraparound cutbacks into fin releases into airs. And I was just like, holy moly. Like, and I think you know, having guys like him and having guys like Wardo and having guys like Kelly kind of break that tradition with their experimentation. And the more they experiment, the more into it other guys are going to be. I think at that elite level, you, every heat matters so much, not just financially, but to everyone's career, especially for the world title, that you often see a lack of experimentation at the very top because these guys just want to be on their Ferraris all the time. Like that's like they're like this heat matters. I'm surfing the thing I know every event. I think where we've seen a lot of experimentation in recent years is in the technology sector, whether it's been with Firewire or sort of the epoxies coming into play. And even last year, sort of the varial foam stuff being adopted by Italo Ferreira. So I think guys are looking for a lighter, stronger, more responsive material, which is good because that'll probably shift them away from getting, you know, 150 boards a year or whatever it is. And yeah. And so you mentioned technology and the, I guess, the subjective nature of the sport. Would there be any push? I remember a few years ago at the Snapper Rock event when you use GPS with that stuff evolving, things like uh, Trace and Red 9 starting to come to market. Would that maybe become a part of the of the broadcast yeah we in, we interviewed david lockshin trace recently on the show and you know and, and while it's it seems like the the technology is still evolving and they're not quite there yet but uh, i mean could you see hypothetically a few years down the line a place for that in, in judging heats yeah i mean i think that anytime new technology comes out like the wsl is tries to get as much information as it can, whether that's a wave pool or sort of a performance monitoring technology or even a shark attack deterrent uh, tech. So, you know, our, our departments are always engaging with people when they're coming out with tech. And, and, and certainly the performance monitoring technology has been investigated by the commissioner's office and the judge's department. And I think, yeah, you're right. As it continues to evolve, I don't think it will inform scoring 100%, but will be used as an additional tool like replay to help the judges score. And I think, you know, things like that to go through to the fans to show what's going on. I was watching the Red Bull Air race yesterday and, you know, they've got the speed and the G meter on the screen for the viewer so that they can kind of understand what that aeroplane's doing because it's a little hard to put it in perspective. 
Totally. And I think all data is really, really helpful, even outside of competition, even in training. I think it's just the application of that data and how you evolve your approach or your equipment or your physicality. You know, that's going to be the start. I've got just one final question for you, Dave. How often do you get to jump in the water? <laughs> uh, I was going to ask that. Significantly less these days now that we're a grown up organization. <laughs> um, not look, I, you know, I, I do my best to get out there every day. I think the nice thing for me with surfing is like, I feel like even if I have a bad session, I don't, I don't feel like I have bad sessions. I think if I maybe don't surf as well, I still learn something new, whether it's how to approach a wave or how to duck dive better or how to bottom turn better, even if it was a miss. And I think that can't ever master it. So it's this constant progression. That's why I really like it. And yeah, we get to go to some really awesome places and surf some really great waves. I, I think the misconception is you're getting to go to J-Bay and getting to go to Fiji and Tahiti and, and a lot of these really idyllic locations for work. Yeah. I think the misconception is we get to surf them when they're really good. But the reality is if they're good, we're, <laughs> we're not surfing them. The guys and girls are surfing them and we're working them. So you know, I often joke with my friends back home that they probably score better waves than I do most of the year because they get to go surf when our spots are doing their thing and I get to go surf, you know, two foot onshore J-Bay. But hey, I'll, I'll take a two foot onshore surf at J-Bay any day of the week. So Yeah, I, I was wondering as well, we, we quite often sync up in France with when the tour's there and I was out in Tahiti when, when a few of the guys were there last year as well. And every time I'm around that level of surfer surfing, I mean, it simultaneously, I think, raises my standard and makes me push myself, but also makes me realize just how way off that level I could ever possibly be. I mean, there's, there's what, there's about 60 people, more or less, that are traveling around with the tour to every stop? Uh, it dep depends on the stop, but yeah, I'd say that's close to accurate. Yeah, I was wondering how that feels when you're just constantly surfing around the best surfers in the world. Uh, yeah, you, you definitely try to make as few mistakes as possible. <laughs> but I think the other thing, too, is it's it's important. A lot of these places we go, like Tahiti, have a really small takeoff zone. And especially when the guys are out there training, you, know, you don't want to push them into bad waves and you don't want to hassle them for waves. They're there to train for the event. We're there to support them. Not that I'm hassling like a hobgood for a 12-foot wave at Chopa or anything, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe a four foot wave it lowers. But but so yeah, so I think that's the thing. But you know, the places we go to, they're just they're just wonderful places. You meet a lot of really cool people and you're introduced to a lot of other cultures and there are other waves in and around the event venues that we get to go check out and yeah, I mean I, I think you, you do your best to surf and you can pick up a lot just watching them just sit in the water and then kind of watching how they read lineups and stuff and it's phenomenal. I mean a few years before, it's 2010, actually, the year that um, he unfortunately passed away, I was fortunate enough to surf out in the afternoon on one of the late days with Andy Irons uh, at Chopu. And it had been flat for a few days and, you know, swell had just started to kind of come up and, and we were going to be surfing the next day for the contest. And so a lot of the guys were out there and I'd caught a few ways and then a, a few few guys came out and... It got guys like Kelly were out there in the hob goods and stuff. And, and Andy, even approaching Chopu at four foot, he made those guys look like like me, I, I hesitate to say, but like his comfort level in waves of consequence and the way he was able to read the lineup and position himself, even when it was sort of a non-critical kind of lineup, just blew me away. And I, it's probably it's probably way too much of an exaggeration to say they he made them look like me. But it, the reality was it's like seeing those guys in their element is, is truly like a special thing. And yeah, he was truly something special out at places like Chopes. Well, it's it's really uh, it's really great to hear you talking so passionately about what you do. I mean, it just uh, it's it's so obvious from listening to you talk about the World Tour how passionate you are about it. 
And uh, I think we're probably, as viewers and as fans, very lucky to have someone like you at the helm at the moment. So thanks for everything that you do, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for coming on, Dave. That was, that was great. Yeah, no problem, guys. Thank you. Oh, super interesting. I think it's my favorite episode. <laughs> <laughs> safe Take travels, years. Dave. Take care and safe travels. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. On the basis of the Eddie running last week, we have a superhero of surf segment on Eddie Aikau. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm very excited for this week's Superhero of Surf because the name Eddie Aikau has, by all accounts, developed to be larger than life. From Eddie would go bumper stickers to t-shirts, posters, and obviously the iconic big wave event in his name, you're left wondering whether the actual person could ever live up to the mammoth persona left behind after his death. And the answer is, quite simply, yes, and more. As the descendant of a Hawaiian high priest, uh, in fact, the one who presided over the Waimea Valley, uh, Eddie was royalty through and through, perhaps only eclipsed by the Duke as the most regal Hawaiian surfer in modern history. Eddie Aikau was born in Maui uh, in 1946, but moved to Oahu at age 12. Uh, his family lived on a nine-acre cemetery, uh, and they were given the land to live rent-free as long as they maintained the ground. So he had a bunch of brothers and sisters and just kind of a ton of Hawaiian kids uh, running rampant in this big old cemetery. He grew up in a pretty radical time in Hawaiian history, which played a pretty big part in his life. It was the era when the Hawaiian Islands were annexed to the United States, and Native culture was kind of just put on display uh, as more of a tourist attraction than an actual way of life. And it, it sort of got pushed out throughout his, his lifetime, which he worked quite diligently to protect. He quickly turned to surfing and earned a reputation as one of the harder-charging Hawaiians in the fledgling days of the North Shore. However, when the first major contest was held, the Duke Classic held at Sunset Beach in 1965, he was notably absent from the invitee list. Did he say what the, his reasons were? I don't know. It was the best Hawaiian surfer left out of the first North Shore event. It was uh, the darker skin. Uh, at that time, California surfers were promoted a lot more than Hawaiians. You oh, so it was an invite-only thing? Yeah, it was an invite-only event. And actually, obviously not happy about it, Eddie paddled out during the event anyway and totally stole the show. That's a good move. Yeah, that's a pretty good move. It was, uh, it was interesting talking with David Davis last week about the the racial prejudice that Duke Kahanamoko had to mm. had to fight against. Yeah, and so the winner of the event was was Jeff Hackman, mm -hmm. who he was a Californian that moved to the islands at age fifteen or sixteen, and the press release from the event was like, "Oh, Hawaiian surfer wins the the celebrated Hawaiian event," and in fact, he wasn't Hawaiian at all. And Duke Kahanamoko actually was really sad about him not being in the event. So next year, he was definitely on that invite list. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Can you imagine if that happened now, if, if somebody just paddled out during a CT event and just surfed amazing? I'm just trying to think what I would think about that. I mean, they would have to surf really good. Because yeah. if you paddled out in the middle of a CT event and you surfed anything less than much better than the guys in the water... Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're not going to look very cool. I guess different times, but that's pretty, pretty epic at the time to have done that. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested to be a fly on the wall on the beach. I mean, I doubt that was... From everything that you hear about Eddie, he was a very like passive guy. He was always settling confrontation rather than creating it. 
I mean, I, I, yeah, it's, uh, it, I'd love to know what the thinking was. Yeah, it's funny you say settling confrontation rather than uh, creating it. Uh, do you remember the whole story of the busting down the door Australian generation? Yeah, yeah. The, the bronze Dozzy generation yeah. down to white, which uh, who is all about Rabin Bartholomew, who, who Dave was uh, the protege of, when he joined yeah. the ASP. Well, you had Rabbit Bartholomew and, and you know Mark Richards and Sean Thompson. Sean Thompson. And these guys come to the North PT Shore and they're Kent. just... Their whole idea is just, you know, we're here, we're going to make a statement, and that did not go over very well with the Hawaiians. They, well, they, I, I don't know if that they all had the attitude. I mean, certainly... Rabbit bugs, might have. Yeah, Rabbit did. Um, and listeners, when we say Bugs, Rabbit, and Wayne Bartholomew, that's all the same person, <laughs> just to make it clear. <laughs> Bugs, uh, but, you know, Mark Richards, I think he was just much more kind of quietly just wanted to surf and do his own thing and didn't want to ruffle any feathers. Well, whether they meant to or not, they definitely ruffled some feathers. And they had some guys a lot bigger than the surf culture out after them. You know, there's those classic stories where Rabbit was scared for his life. You know, he just one day got out of the water and just, by all accounts, just got his ass kicked by... A, yeah, a, he he, uh, he paddled out at sunset one day. And everyone at sunset just paddled in from the beach, apparently. Mm-hmm. This, uh, Rabbit wrote a book, Busting Down the Door, which later was a film. And this is one of the most famous anecdotes from it. And... He thought, oh, this is awesome. Everyone thinks I'm so good that they're just going to paddle in and watch me. But no. Which sort of says quite a lot about where young 20-whatever-year-old Bugs' head was at. And then, yeah, these eight guys just paddled out and and beat the crap out of him. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's where Eddie stepped in. Yeah, so Rabbit is is holed up in his hotel room, you know, scared to leave at night for his life. And uh, one night there's a knock on the door and it's it's Eddie Aikau. And he says, you're just nothing but come with me. And so at that point, you know, Eddie's the most respected guy on the North Shore. They don't really have much choice. So they go with him and they get taken to the conference room at the Turtle Bay Resort where he essentially had a trial in front of all the Hawaiian heavies at the time. And Eddie was the only guy uh, supporting their cause. He said, look, you know, they're coming over here. They're trying to make a name for themselves. You know, the violence isn't good for us. It's not good for them. Let's, let's settle this. And at that time, I'm not sure that really anyone else could have done it with much success it was just that eddie Aikau was such a respected individual that uh, he he carried a lot of weight when he said hey these guys are okay yeah have you seen the uh, the drunk history of that event no oh it's amazing have you seen the drunk history series oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. amazing so that there's one of the busting down the door eddie Aikau event which is amazing oh i'm gonna check that out i'll stick it in the show notes yeah it's very good uh, as well as being by most accounts the most dominant surfer at YMA in the the 60s and 70s, Eddie felt such a loyalty to the place that he became the area's first lifeguard in, in 1968. Here's where the story gets a little superhuman. So in his entire tincture as lifeguard in the area, he had over 500 rescues and zero deaths. So we're talking one of the most dangerous stretches of beach in, in the world in an era where a lot of the military guys would come over, get just loaded, boozed up in, in the YMA shore break, and he would end up having to save the same guy four times. And, and at that point, he never had one death. I think it was he one of the guys that was really sort of really pushed that intervention side of things that they now do in Hawaii a lot, where they will just say, look, you shouldn't go surfing. Yeah. And I think he, he was one of the, the guys that started that method. Mm-hmm. So in 1978, Eddie Aikau gained birth as one of the 16 crew members aboard the Hukalei, which was, it was this double, double-hulled canoe replica of the ones the ancient Polynesians used. Yeah. And at that point, with the Hawaiian culture just being pushed out, the crew in Hawaii hatched this idea to do the journey of from Hawaii to Tahiti to kind of bring back their culture and show that, you know, we're, we're some of the best nautical, 
humans the world's ever seen. So yeah, he he earned his his spot on that crew. And when the day came about for the vessel to depart, it was really really stormy. It was terrible conditions, but you know, something like three thousand people came down to the beach to watch this this ship go off. And the mayor of town said, "Look, guys, you gotta you gotta go do it today." So against you know, Eddie especially saying, you know, we shouldn't go out. It's too windy. It's too stormy. Let's wait till tomorrow. They went out every- anyway. Because I guess, you know, this is pre-internet and yeah. forecasting. Uh, tragically, the vessel developed a leak in the starboard hold and capsized shortly after departing. You know, it's something like five hours into a 2,500-mile journey they started to, to go underwater. The crew spent the full night holding on to the porthole. And mid-morning next day, Eddie said that you know, they had an onboard 10-foot surfboard and he was going to paddle it to help. They were you know, 12 miles south of the southernmost Hawaiian island. Mm-hmm. Lanai? Yep. And he said, look, you know, 12 miles, I can do this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just going to depart right now. So what, what was the logic behind him getting off the boat and onto the board? So they'd, they'd launched a couple of flares at passing boats. And one way or another, no one had seen the flares. No one had responded. Their radio gear, I think I'm right in saying the radio gear was damaged when the, the boat capsized. So they were at the point where they had, they were now drifting away from land, drifting south the next I mean, really, the next point of land is Antarctica uh, as you go south from Hawaii. So th- th- they were at a point where 12, 15 miles from Hawaii, like that's that's a very doable paddle on a, on a paddleboard. Mm-hmm. It's something Eddie Aikau did all the time. If the boat continued to drift, they were going to get further and further away from land, further and further from any chance of anyone seeing them and rescuing them. So his logic was, I'll paddle to land and send the Coast Guard out for you guys. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as the story goes, uh, Eddie jumped on the board, had nothing but a rain slicker, a knife, a strobe light. The crew was rescued later that day. Eddie was never seen again. Yeah, so the, there was a, an airplane flying into uh, Hawaii. Actually saw them, uh, and they, they shot a fl- one of their remaining flares. Yeah, they shot their last flare. The airplane saw it, circled, radioed the position, and a helicopter, a Coast Guard helicopter came out and picked them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ensuing search for Eddie ended up being, uh, it's the largest land and sea search in Hawaiian's history to this day. So, yeah, they did a big effort and they just never found the body or the board. Yeah, none of it ever showed. Yep. And then just to finish it off and take us back to how the podcast started, talking about the Eddie, Bob McKnight from Quicksilver, I don't know whether he approached the Aikau family or whether the Aikau's approached him or how it came about, but but either way, from just from hearing him talk on the on the webcast of the recent contest, they work very much together to develop the whole concept of the competition, even right down to the Aikau's being involved with the format of the judging. And of course, Clyde Aikau, who we talked about before, who was out surfing last week at 66 years old, is Eddie's brother. Yeah, so uh, the, the contest started at Sunset Beach. It ran one year at Sunset Beach before they shifted the contest to Waimea. Because uh, that was where Eddie really loved surfing, wasn't it? Yeah, that was where he was passionate about surfing. And the first year they ran it at Waimea, Clyde Aikau won the event on a 10-year-old surfboard that belonged to Eddie, his favorite big wave gun. There's just so much that's cool about that whole story. I mean, obviously, it's very sad that Eddie died. But, I mean, that, that, that whole narrative back from... Eddie Aikau on, on the North Shore and when Wayne Rabbit Bartholomew came over and the foundation of uh, modern competitive surfing which has been passed down to Dave who we were just talking to and then the contest 
being named after him and 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 you know and his brother out surfing i mean that's this this is one of my favorite shows we've ever done yeah talk about goosebumps <laughs> and it is, uh, that's what i love about surfing is we have all these kind of cool legends about us rather than uh you know pure historical it, it's it's morphed into kind of mythological history yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is probably going to be one of our longer episodes. We've done an awful lot of uh, material into this. But just before we go, a couple of quick what to watches as we leave. There has been, of course, with this year, even more surfing going on at Jaws. And it's, I, I'm almost a bit numb to it. But there was, did you guys see the guy water skiing it? Yeah, what? Because I remember seeing one clip of him a couple of years ago, kind of tentatively going down the edge. I mean, he's fully like leaning on his ski poles carving big turns on the face of jaws now do you think daniel thompson's watching it going that gives me an idea yeah (laughs) Uh, i tell you what i really enjoyed this week and there's that movie that yeti have just put out about the malloy brothers yeah what an interesting sponsor yeah how do you fancy being sponsored by a beer cooler (laughs) it's It's an amazing movie i thought i mean it's It's only short listeners it's what five or eight minutes maybe and it's just about uh, keith dan and chris malloy and who they are and uh, they they produced some of my favorite all-time surf movies they're amazing surfers artists they they're representative of patagonia for a long time i don't know if they're still involved with patagonia but really, yeah. really cool. Yeah, anyway, we'll put that in the show notes too. That's worth watching. Yeah, I thought that was great. And just as a final wrap from... Epic beards as well. Epic. Yeah, good beards. Good yeah. beards. Just to bring us full loop to the start of the episode, Peter King has put out another episode of Tour Notes on wrapping up the Eddie Cow event. Yeah, uh, that's and cool. I enjoyed the Tour Notes. That was my favourite Tour Notes, actually. Yeah, it was a good one. And finally, of course, after all our contest talk this episode... Don't forget to keep an eye on the Quicksilver and Roxy Pro contests. The waiting periods start on March 10th, uh, and they're taking place on the Gold Coast of Australia. So just bear in mind the uh, time zone adjustments for, for different parts of the world there. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope that you've enjoyed this show. We are going to be away for a week or two now, uh, but I hope you have a great time. I hope you get some waves somewhere. And from all of us, goodbye. Bye. See you later. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.